0: Uh, okay, a couple of house... I'll, I'll start to send this. We probably should pray first for crying out loud. Here we go. Let's pray. Close your eyes. Hold your hands. That's right. This commandment we have from him, that he He who loves God should love his brother also. First John four twenty one. That's for 19 Pentecost. Dear Father in heaven, who has revealed your love to us in Jesus Christ, your Son, grant to us, we pray, your Holy Spirit, that we may love you with our whole heart and our neighbors as ourselves through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, all sorts of things to do. It's always fun to get started. Um, you've got an attendance sheet going around. Uh, we're, we'll send some money to Russia. How about that? Uh, so the Russians are always a good target. Uh, I suspect that, hi, David. I suspect that we'll see um, Altar and Pulpit Fellowship with the Russians fairly soon. That'll be a nice thing. And you can all take partial credit for that because you supported them when nobody know who, knew who they were. A couple of things, um, just to just to, I'll try to keep going. Uh, you know, we're in this transition mode now, all of us. So, if I don't say something about the place next door, then you'll remind me to say something. But it's really a fantastic thing. You saw the pancake thing coming up on the 16th of October. I bid you to come one to see how any human being can make 48 pancakes a minute. So that's one thing. I mean, any guy with a, who can make 48 pancakes a minute, that's a, that's a, that's almost like turning you know water into wine. Um, that would also be a good time to bring your friends. If you have friends who, you know, have never been to church, wonder about St. John. I mean, that's about as non-threatening as it can be. Um, sort of the excitement of a new place and a guy making pancakes, that should be great. So mark that on the 16th. If you can be coming out to work days, um, please come. Now, we're not desperate about that. The good thing is so many people are showing up, it's been very helpful, but there's just a lot to do. And the more we do ourselves, you know, the better stewards we are of the money we've got. So. If you can come out on a Monday or Wednesday or Saturday, the dates and times are in your bulletin. So um, please come out. And we're at the point now where what's going to happen is we'll have uh, some jobs that will get done, and then we're going to have a little bit of a lull when some folks do some heavy stuff that we can't do ourselves. We can't self-perform. And then there'll be another chance to do a lot of cool stuff. And then the floor will go in, so we'll have to take another lull because we have to stay off it for a few weeks, and then you know things will pick up again. So there's going to be this up and down but it'll be fun for you to see as things go. That's why the pictures are there. Look at the blog. Um, try to watch the bulletin for what's going on. Also, the men's retreat. Uh, you guys in the congregation, if you want to come out for that, we've got only 50 or 60 spots, so now's the time to reserve for that. So, And also the automatic giving thing. You know, we can have a chatter about that sometimes. Um, what I sense in the congregation is not a resistance to, to giving. Actually, this congregation is very good at giving. You can see... Uh, we've simplified in the bulletin, uh, you know, we've, we've gone to a very simple thing of just saying, uh, you know, we, we took in this much and we we need this much and you can see that we're in the black and that's good news. Uh, we're trying to keep things as simple as possible. So the question isn't for us, you know, are we gonna make it, that's not our question. Our question is how much good we can do. That was the, that was the sermon this morning, you know, the question is how do you manage your life so you can do maximum amount of good? That's where we wanna go. And this place has great potential and joy for that. So keep an eye on that. One way to do that is the automatic giving that um, you know just keeps going. And you should um, say a little prayer to the baby Jesus when the uh, when the plate goes by. Uh, you know, kind of that's your time to focus on what you're meant to be doing. Yes, my friend. I gave you an initial handout. Thank you very much. The initial handout is what you said last week when we got together. I did get some comments about how nice it was to sit around tables with a cup of coffee. We think that's nice, too. If you can imagine the new space where we'll be going in the new place, uh, up the stairs, what was their chapel will become our primary Bible study room until we outgrow it, at least. Um, That should take 150 or 170 people, I would think. Uh, So there'll be the chance in the new place to sit and have a cup of coffee and talk a little bit. That should be very, very nice. We won't need that as a chapel because we'll have a chapel as part of our sanctuary, so um, it should be very fun. We'll get more experiences like that. You're just gonna have to bear with us. I know that um, people are wondering when we're gonna get in there, you know. We're trying to wait for a few more things to fall, get contracts to get signed, dates to get set, and then we'll talk to you about when that's gonna be, but I don't wanna set a false expectation and then disappoint you. Questions about any of that? Everybody okay? All right, um, then, we should be able to have some fun here in the next few weeks. We're imagining this going from about now till Christmas in its present format. Uh, We'll see, you know, things push and pull. And then after Christmas, uh, many of you, it's been kind of interesting, many of you have said, can we sort of review all the difference um, that the new sanctuary will make? I I heard, I was talking to, I had lunch with a professor at Wheaton College the other day and I was describing what we were doing. And one of the things he said is, uh, The building always wins. It's a quote from a famous architect. But the quote is, the building always wins. And that's actually gonna prove itself out in our new place. The big altar, the big font, the big crucifix, the big window, the building always wins. That's why we're spending so much time uh, It's St. Francis of Assisi Day coming up on October 4th. You remember that he said, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. That actually works, that works for the building too. So the building preaches, which is part of the reason we're so excited about it. Um, And we will spend some time about how we'll do things. For example, in my mind, I think that we can do, now this is not to make the ushers put them out of a job, but I think that we can do all of the communion dismissal, I think we can bring everybody to the altar with one usher, and maybe none, but one usher, which will be interesting for you and for us. So it's stuff like that we need to talk about. That doesn't mean we don't need ushers. We're going to need them in other places doing other things. But it's going to be, there's going to be some things where so there'll be kneelers. We need to talk about that. What if you get, um, like my mom, two artificial knees and kneeling is out of the question. What do you do at that time? We're going to need to talk about that. Uh, why is Jesus on the cross? Why are there crosses on the lectern and the pole? We've got to talk about all that stuff. That's going to be so much fun. But in advance of that, we want to get ready. And so, what we've been thinking about with uh, the exercise last week and what we're doing now is, if you... Uh, let me tell you, that you should always admit your assumptions or your presuppositions. My assumption is, and I believe this with all my heart now, having been um, you know, pastor 17 years, my assumption is, if you build a beautiful community, that's its own evangelism. You know, If you are kind to each other, if you're welcoming, if you're loving, if you speak well if you have a beautiful space, if you tend the liturgy, if people care for each other. The world is so hungry for that. That's the best evangelism. Most people, if you read studies, most people join the church. 70, 80% of the people join the church because somebody said, I really love my church, you should come along. So part of what we're thinking about, and Joe was very helpful you know, uh, in, in talking to us about this, and that's partly why he's going to lead today, we're saying to ourselves, when we go next door, you know, there's a dozen things we can do. But what do we want to be known for? What are the things we want to emphasize? What are the things that we hold dear? What are the things, if somebody walked in the door, they'd say, St. John is good at? See, that's the question. And I just have to say, you know, the last couple of weeks, there's been this kind of marvelous buzz in the congregation. People have been so happy, people have been staying to chat with each other. Um, It's just, it's felt so good. You know, you all have been doing a great job with this. What we want to do now is get everybody on the same page. This is what we're known for. This is what we do. This is what we care about, okay? And to do that, there's no better way than just listening to a few Bible stories. So with that, um, Mr. Hanson.
1: One of my favorite Bible stories is a story that my mom used to tell me when I was little, and you probably know it too. It was, it's the story about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You can find the story in the first book of Kings, but it's such a well-known story, you can even find it in the Quran if you look there. This story happened during a time when Ahab was the king of Israel. Ahab was the worst king Israel ever had. He wasn't satisfied with just worshiping a few idols like some of the kings before him had done. When it came to being a bad guy, he plowed new ground. He went above and beyond. He was really bad. In fact, the, the, the scripture tells us that he did more to make God mad at him than any king that had come before him at that time. One of the things that he did was he married a girl named Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was as wicked as he was. She was a Gentile girl. Her father was the king of Sidon. He was also a clergyman. He was a priest in the temple of Baal, who was the heathen god in that place. So when Ahab brought Jezebel back to Samaria, which was his royal city, he wanted to keep her happy there. You know, happy wife, happy life, you've heard that. So he built a fantastic new place of worship, a beautiful place. He furnished it with all the best of everything. He built a beautiful altar in the center of it. And then he brought in 450 prophets of Baal just to run the whole show. They dedicated the whole thing to Baal, to Baal worship, to Baal service, everything was about Baal. But there was more. This god Baal had a girlfriend. Baal's girlfriend was a goddess named Asherah. So Ahab said, well, we ought to do something for her too. So he built an image to Asherah. And then Jezebel, she wanted part of the the action. So she went and she brought 400 more prophets in to take care of that whole place. Well, it was bad enough that Ahab and Jezebel worshiped Asherah and worshiped Baal. But Jezebel, who hated the Lord, sent her staff out to comb the whole country of Israel and find all the priests and prophets of the Lord and put them to death because she hated him so much. Well, before very long, there weren't many left. It was just Elijah and a handful of other faithful. And before very long, most of the people were worshiping Baal too. So Elijah went down to talk to Ahab and warn him about all this wickedness. Because something had to change. So Elijah walks into the palace and he says, Ahab, I have a weather forecast for you and you're not going to like it very much. But for the foreseeable future, it's going to be hot and dry. He said, what I mean is it's not going to rain in Israel until the Lord says it's going to rain. Well, the Lord talked to Elijah. He said, you better, you better lay low for a while. He said, Ahab's not very happy with this. So Elijah goes into hiding, and that's another story. But time goes by, and it was very hot in Israel. It was so dry that there wasn't even any dew. And the animals were stressed, and the people were distressed, and the whole country was suffering. After three years, after three years, the Lord said to uh, Elijah, he said, I want you to go back and talk to Ahab again. I want you to tell him, now I'm going to make it rain. So Elijah goes back to the palace, and Ahab sees him coming. So Ahab says, you again. Haven't you made enough trouble around here? Well, Ahab, well, Elijah said, it's not me, Ahab, he said it's you. You disobey God, you don't follow his commandments, you worship Baal, you worship Asherah, and you've got the whole country doing the same thing. So here's what's went, here's what we're gonna do. He said, I'd like you to get everybody together, the whole whole nation of Israel. Get them all together. Let's all meet at Mount Carmel. And he said, bring those priests, the 450 and the 400, get everybody there at Mount Carmel, because I've got some stuff to say to you. So Ahab said, well, all right, we'll do that. So everybody got together at Mount Carmel, and Elijah gets up and he talks to the folks, and he says, how long is this going to go on? How long are you going to keep this up? He said, it's like you guys have one bad leg and you keep hopping around on the other one and you hop from one side to the other. You worship the Lord, then you worship Baal, then you worship the Lord. He said, you gotta choose a lane here. Make up your mind. He said, if Baal's the God, then line up behind him. If the Lord is God, line up behind him. What are you gonna do? Well, nobody said anything. It was quiet, it was total silence. Maybe the people were afraid of the priests, who knows? So Elijah said, well, then let's do this. He said, bring me two bulls. So they brought two bulls to to Elijah and he said, okay, prophets of Baal on this side. He said, you guys, uh, you know, there's 450 of you. I'm the only prophet of the Lord. I don't want you to think that I have an unfair advantage here. So you get first pick, choose whichever bull you want and then I'll take the leftover. So the prophets chose the bull they thought was the best one. And Elijah said, okay, this one's mine. And he said, now what I want you to do is to get a bunch of wood and lay a fire. Lay a big fire, sacrifice your bull, cut him up, put it on top of the the wood. But don't light anything. No fire here. And he said, I'll do the same thing. And then what we're going to do is you guys pray to Baal, and I'll pray to the Lord. And whichever one answers with fire and burns up the sacrifice, that's who's really God. Well, the people love this, they said, oh, that's a great contest, let's do that, let's go. So uh, Elijah said again, you know, um, only 450 of you, I'll let you guys go first, no, uh, no unfair advantage here. So they, built the, uh, they, laid, the, they laid the fire, they, they sacrificed the bull, put it on top, and then they started their prayers. They started early in the morning, they said, Baal, send fire, hey Baal, you know, make, make fire come down, burn up the sacrifice. No fire, no answer from Baal. So then they then then they said, Well, we gotta get his attention. So they started shouting louder and louder. Hey Baal, can you hear me now? Send fire. Nothing happens. So they said, Well, you know, we gotta do a little bit more. So they started dancing. While they hollered, they danced, they prayed, they begged, no answer from Baal. It got to be about lunchtime. And Elijah starts to make fun of them. He said, Well, you know, maybe Baal's talking to somebody else. Well, maybe Baal's taking a nap, or he could be on a trip. And then, I love this part, he said, maybe Baal's in the bathroom. (laughs) Well, the priests were getting pretty mad. He said, okay, we've got to do something to impress Baal. So as they hollered, and as they prayed, and as they danced around, they took out spears, and swords, and knives, and they started cutting themselves. And the blood was gushing and flowing all over the place. You know, there's nothing that impresses a god like Baal more than a little bloodshed. So they made that happen. All afternoon this went on. No fire, no answer from Baal. It was getting to be about the time for evening services when they had the evening sacrifice. That was towards the end of the day. And Elijah said, okay, enough of this, it's my turn now. So he said, bring me 12 boulders. So they brought him 12 big stones. And he used these stones to fix up, to build up the altar of the Lord, because it had gone into disrepair from neglect after all these years. So he built it up all nice again. And he got the wood, and he put it on top of the altar. And he sacrificed his bull, and he put that on top of the wood. And then he did something extra. He dug a trench all the way around the altar. And then he said, I don't want to get accused later on of cheating or having an unfair advantage. So he said bring me four big jars of water, okay? Mary Lou, when I was, t- when I was uh, explaining this part to her, she said, man, they must've had some altar guild then, right, <laughs> the boulders, the water. So he pours the water all over the whole thing, over the altar, over the wood, over the bowl. And he said, well, let's just be sure, fill them up again, we'll do it again. Four more jars of water, the whole thing is drenched. He said, the third time's the charm, four more jars of water. So he poured the water over the whole affair. There's so much water, it's so wet that the trench is full of water. He said, that ought to do it. And then he turns to heaven, and he starts his prayer. He says, "O Lord, you're the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He said, let all these people know that you're the God of Israel and that you're the God of everyone and that I'm your servant, and let them know that it's you who turns people's hearts back to you. But boom, God sends fire down. It burns up the bull, it burns up the wood, it's so hot even the stones of the altar are burning. And all the water in the trench boils away. Well, the people were stunned. They fell on their faces. They said, Lord, you really are God. It's you and nobody else. And Elijah said, you're right, that's right. The Lord is God. So he said, the next thing I'd like you to do is to round up these rascals, these prophets of Baal and the other guys, don't let anybody get away and put them to death. So they did that. And while they were doing that, the Lord said to Elijah, he said, I'd like you to go back up on the mountain again, up on Mount Carmel. So Elijah went up there and the Lord said, look over the edge, look out toward the sea. What do you see? And Elijah said, well, I don't see anything. So the Lord said, well, I'd like you to uh, do that seven more times and then tell me. So Elijah obeyed God and he went back seven times. And after the seventh time, he said, there's a little black cloud out there. And God said, why don't you go down and tell Ahab it's gonna rain? So Elijah goes back down the mountain. He says, Ahab, you better get home while you can still get there. So Ahab gets in his chariot and he drives home. Now Elijah runs in front of the chariot the whole way, so uh, I don't know what kind of horses Ahab had, but uh, that's how the story turns out. Meanwhile, God answered the prayers of the people and answered Elijah's prayer. The sky got dark and the wind blew, the rain came down and it was a real gully washer, and uh, God answered the prayers and the rain came back to Israel again.
0: be, if you had to say, if you had to say a thing that, uh, if you were going to say what that was about, what was that about? What do you say? Don't be shy. Otherwise, we have to go back downstairs and sit around tables and get coffee. (laughs) you have to be, apparently you have to be manipulated into talking, so. No, seriously, what's the story about? Just as you hear the story, what's the story about? Please? There is a question about who's God and who's not. That's right. Good. What else? First thing to do is just to listen. Just listen to the story. What else? There's a ton of things going on in that story. What else? Go ahead, Peter. People didn't have faith until they saw a sign. So there is about faith and um, not, not believing until you've seen something, which Hebrews is a little harsh on, right? What else is going on there? God does listen to his prophets. He doesn't listen to his prophets, so God listens to his prophets. I was... Um, I was supposed to have a marker board, but then the vicar was afraid that his wife was going into labor because she hadn't been seen yet, so that scuttled my marker board plans. <laughs> so you'll have to remember now that uh, you have to remember all that. So who is the true God and how prayers get answered? And um, what was the next thing? Give it to me again, Byron. Yeah, he listens to his prophets. Or his prophets listen to him. It cuts both ways. What else? Yes, please. Where? Oh, yes, Eric. Right, repenting. (laughs) Oh, that action. He said repenting and then the action that came after, which was repenting and then um, kill the bad guys. Yeah, right, so he rounds them up, which is a a tough part of the story. Yes, Mr. Lee? You did. You heard a bold story of evangelism. What was that story like? In what sense? Can you just say one more thing about that? Because that's not the most obvious thing, perhaps. Good, so you've got a country with more than one God, and you have people worshiping sort of back and forth as if it doesn't make any difference, and then the story ends up with making things clear and bringing uh, people do come back. It's always, well, I shouldn't comment too much yet. What else is on there? What else do you see? Yes, please, George. that's a very interesting take that this is really a story about mercy when god could have just put them all he could have just wiped them all out that would have been very easy for god to do and of course we see that other places in the scriptures with noah you know let's just start over so that's a very interesting perceptive sort of comment because it doesn't look obvious that this is about mercy but in some odd sense it must be yes david Right, so um, you become the God you follow, if you will. If you follow the false God, you become false, and death is the end of that. If you follow the true God, uh, you become true, and uh, life is the end of that. What else? Yes, please. That is interesting. He punished the leaders, but not the misled. In fact, the, the misled get paid off in the end. That is, they get rain, which they'd been waiting for a long time. That's very interesting, yeah, good. What else have you got? Anything else? I like the way altered it, a Yeah, he didn't fix the game in any way. Um, he she said he, he uh, your first line, you like the way he sort of went the extra mile to make sure that nobody thought anything was fixed. Right, good. What else? Yeah, the omnipotence of God is always uh, a a welcome, well, when it's on your side, it's certainly a welcome thing. Yes, thank you very much. Anything else? Yes, please.
1: Uh, Don't call down fire unless you're like
0: Elijah. (laughs) Uh, That's a very helpful insight, I think. Don't call down fire unless you're like Elijah. You've probably been tempted in your life from time to time to call down fire. It's a it's a it's a game for a specialist I think Uh, you know Uh, you have to make sure that you're right when you when you call down fire uh, you know because I mean the next part of it is is the fire didn't consume the prophets but the prophets didn't make it out alive of course good what else have you got anything else yes please. Yeah, that God's always listening. They, they couldn't get Baal to answer, but in fact, um, even though it wasn't always apparent, you know, there's no clouds in the sky, there hasn't been rain for a while, um, and and one of the things is people always think that they are. Uh, I'm sure that Ahaz and Jezebel, Ahab and Jezebel, both thought um, that they were appealing to the true God, or at least enough to the true God that um, they were well within the boundaries of what should happen to folk, but. The reality is, um, you know, God doesn't pay attention to some things and he dearly pays attention to other things. So that's very good second commandment stuff. We'll have to get to that at some point too. What else? Anything else that you got? You should have in front of you uh, a little bit of a handout. I've always tried to, I've just tried to say one thing. Uh, As I said to you, what we want to do is figure out what we want to carry with us next door, what we want to be known for, or things that you want to hold on to as you go. And um, Jan was very helpful with the very first thing that she said, which is, and everything else can be drawn out of it, which is, you know, this is really a a choice between God who's true and God who's false. You know, we've often said, and Luther said this too, that you only really need the first commandment. Everything else can be drawn out of that. You keep the first commandment, you get everything right. You break the first commandment, you get everything wrong. And in a sense, um, all of our life is a question about... What God we serve! Uh, I'll just just to kind of push that farther. What David said is also very helpful. You become what you touch, and you've heard us say this repeatedly, which is: touch holy things, don't touch unholy things. If you touch holy things, this is mercy. This is the gospel. If you touch holy things, they make you holy. Today, when you come to the Eucharist, and the holy body and blood of Jesus is, touches your lips, like Isaiah six you too become holy. If you touch things that are evil, or God forbid, even demonic, those things make you evil and eventually demonic. That's why we talk about being possessed. Those evil things take control of you. And all of life can kind of be sorted out that way, between what's holy and unholy. That's the whole story of Scripture. In this one chapter, 1 Kings 18, the whole story of Scripture is there. It's a very simple choice between, or distinction between, what's holy and unholy. And you and I are very much like those people in the middle. There are times when we you know, don't know which side is right, or maybe we don't know what to do. One of the most striking things in the way Joe told the story is how people are very quiet when the two options are in front of them. Even though one option is clearly life and the other option is clearly death. Okay. But the very interesting thing is how people are quiet. And then Peter's very helpful comment, which is sometimes people need to see in order to believe. Um, That is, in fact, true. It's not always best, but it is, in fact, true. Which I'll just, as an aside, say that's why it's so important for you all to act as a Christian community because sometimes people see you and believe in Christ. It's gaining sermon for this morning. Sometimes the places you go, the things you do, you're the only person who's gonna be a Christian when people see you, that draws them back uh, to the true God. Okay, so um, the story, if you'll permit me, is just all about idols. Um, When the scriptures speak of idols, it's not as if we have a choice between gods. This is very, very important. It's not as if there's a choice between one god and another god. In fact, in the Hebrew, uh, the word for idol is often translated as no god. Hebrew is such a fun language because of the way it works. You remember the wilderness, we get this from Fred Needen or the bright guy at Valpo. In the wilderness, the Hebrew word for wilderness, the literal translation of that word is the place where we, that we don't have a name for or the place that we can't talk about, the place where we don't know what's going on out there, the place that we can't even describe. So you have this word wilderness, but it's a very descriptive word. It's out there and we have no idea what's cooking. And, of course, the inference there is then stay away from that. In the same way, in the scriptures, in the Hebrew, it's not there's a true God and then there's false gods. Literally, it means God and no gods. Or in the New Testament, it's similar, parallel to Christ and Antichrist. Antichrist. So it makes this very stark distinction between what's alive and what's dead, what's heaven and what's hell, what's good and what's evil, what's holy and what's unholy, what's clean and what's unclean. The whole story of scripture can be told in this one way, you know, fear, fear, trust, and love of God before all things. Don't have any other gods. That's the whole story of scripture. So it's not as if you have a choice between God. Instead, it's a choice between something and nothing. And it's very important. We don't have a lot of time to do this, but I'll say this and it should ring true for you. You know, I'm sure you know, that behind the false gods, the scriptures are very clear, is the demonic. Okay, it's very clear in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I've given you a couple places you can go look around. Isaiah is this remarkable passage, Isaiah four, where he makes fun of people. He says, you cut down a tree, you cut the log in half. You build a fire, you cook your food, you make yourself warm. With the other half of the log, you make yourself an idol, and then you fall down and say, thank you very much for the first half that kept me warm. And he says, you know, how stupid is that? You, know, you just don't understand. So, or, and so I give you this line, and I, what I'm trying to do, what, what we're trying to do here is give you some things to hold on to that'll be very crisp for you. Um, one of the things Joe's been, just so you know, in Governing Board, one of the jo- one of the things Joe's been talking about to all of us is that we communicate better, and he, he has a phrase sometimes, he says, if asked, say this. Well, in the same sense, and that's the way that we can all be on the same page and make sure that you get information. The scriptures are like that, too. If asked about idols, what should you say? I'm giving you a verse there, Isaiah 44:20. This is the guy who chops down the tree and makes an idol. He, what he should say is, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Your right hand in the Middle East is your good hand. You eat with your right hand. You shake with your right hand. In the Middle East, your left hand is you do anything else that's unclean. So your right hand is where you'd hold your idol, embrace what you love. And Isaiah says, what you need to say about yourself or the question you need to ask is, do I have a lie in my right hand? Isn't that interesting? So lying goes with demonic, goes with unholy, goes with destruction, goes with going straight to hell. It's so interesting. We so so often struggle with the scriptures. At the most basic level, the scriptures are very, very clear. Is it true or is it a lie? Is it good or is it evil? Is it holy or is it unholy? Your question in life is what's true and what's false? And the scriptures are very clear about that. So I give you the first thing, you know, a story about idols. You could pick several things. Actually, I'm I'm the best, (laughs) I'm most, um, well, just George's comment that it's about mercy is, I'm thinking, that is a great idea. I should have rewritten this in a different way. That's brilliant. This is really a story about mercy. Um, You know, what's the trouble with your idols? What's the trouble with mine? They get in the way. They lie to you. They tell you it's gonna be okay when it's not gonna be okay. Don't worry, it'll rain someday. Don't worry, there's really a God out there a Baal, an Asherah that has power, don't worry, it's all going to be okay. But here's the most practical thing. Idols blind us. And the great Kleinig's thing, last week, if you are here for Kleinig, when he talks about if you have an idol, you have to open their eyes so they can see, you have to open their mouth so they can eat. One of the things, if you have a lie in your right hand, if you hold an idol close, <laughs> pretty soon you can't see, and pretty soon you become what you love, you become what you touch. Touch unholy things, touch evil things, and you become evil, evil possesses you. You become blind, you can't see what's right and wrong anymore. Touch holy things, and what will happen is, holiness has its way with you, uses you. I didn't do any of the bulletin comments, save one this week, um, but I was struck by how almost every um, comment from, you know, the early church through Augustine to Luther to the dean of the chapel or the former dean of the chapel at Duke all said the same thing, which is to be loved by God is to love God back and to put yourself into the service of love. That's a brilliant way to talk about the Christian life. So, um, you know, what's the trouble with idols? You need to be able to say it this crisply. It's demonic. It's evil it destroys me. I think I told you I was um, with somebody and uh, we were talking about um, a grave sin and uh, the person said to me, nobody ever told me before, it's just not good for me. I thought, what a strange thing that we haven't done a better job as pastors, as, as congregants. Why shouldn't you sin? It's just not good for you. Pornography—it just doesn't help you. Lying—it's just not good for you. Stealing—it turns you into something you don't want to be. Right? What you touch, you become what you touch. Put evil in your right hand, you become evil. That's why um, we always talk about the Eucharist as the physical touch of Jesus, which hallows you and changes you. And you actually got—I think it was Cyprian this morning something that makes Lutherans a little nervous, but sometimes Lutherans need to relax, where it talks about you participate in the divine nature. We get all nervous about that, but there it is in 1 Peter 2, 4, I think is the verse. It's what the scriptures say. You participate in the divine nature. You can't help but participate in the divine nature because at the Eucharist, you take Jesus Christ, a body, blood, soul, and divinity. That's the Council of Chalcedon. You put put what was in the manger in your mouth, you can't help but be changed by that, unless you're in utter rejection of it, but that's not your issue. So um, the interesting thing too is, and this kind of goes to having people in front of you, equally troubling is a heart that can't discern. You remember Solomon's great prayer, there's a great turn of phrase in the Hebrew in Solomon's great prayer, remember for the temple when he's praying? The temple is the place where you're going to go in and meet the holy, do you remember what Solomon, Solomon can have anything he wants. Do you remember what Solomon prays for? What does Solomon pray for? And that's why the scriptures say he was such a great king. What does he pray for? He does pray for wisdom, which is a good way to talk about it. It's kind of a Sunday school way. Does anybody know what the literal Hebrew is? What does it say? Was it, a discerning heart? it is a discerning heart, but even that is a little bit Greek. He's a Hebrew. A discerning heart is how an American would translate it. You're not wrong. It gets translated that way. What's it say? Does anybody know? Gainig knows. Yeah, a heart with ears. The literal phrase is, give me a heart with ears. (coughs) Why is that? So you can listen, and then you can discern, okay? Um, You know, and idols, like I sort of gave you, idols can range from, you know, magic to money. You can make an idol out of anything, and they always end badly. Part of Joe's story this morning is it always ends badly. Now you've got five minutes. Now, if you peek ahead and read, so this is always the problem. I tried not to hand stuff out for you, but um, if I hand it out, then you get the answer I want to give you. But if you were going to say, what's the one thing you want to hold to? And you have to say it in five words or less. Actually, if you can say it in a word or two words, if asked, this is what you'll say to your friends. If you were going to say, what's most important to us? What do we hold dear? What do we put in our right hand? What do we touch? What's the answer? What's the answer? Christ, yeah, it's the flesh and blood, Christ, okay, if asked, and you've heard this in various iterations for as long as I've been here, I gave you one of the old ones, which is one of the old, you know, we talked about stewardship ones, that Christ is first, you know, Joe and his group have talked about this as lining up, as being aligned, you know, in an earlier iteration, I talked to you about this is orbit. In my the, When I came here for an interview before I was pastor, um, you know, the question was put, you know, what, what would you like to see in this congregation? I said, that everything is brought into orbit around Christ. Every person, every skill, every, aska, every asset, every resource, every goodwill, that everything is put into orbit around Christ. You can say this however you want, but Christ has to be first and center. And if we move next door and Christ is first and center, we will flourish. And whenever he's not first and center, we will be diminished, we will suffer, we'll be judged, we'll be punished, and ultimately, if you push it hard enough, we'll fail. It's the very first commandment. It's so easy and it's so difficult. It's very simple, of course, but it's a difficult way to live because it goes to our basic sin, which is pride. We need to push ourselves down and our Lord and our neighbors up. So, if I were to say to you, you know, what's the most important thing to carry in our right hand next door? Not a lie, but a true thing. And the truest thing that ever happened is the incarnation of Christ. So, if you can hold to that, you know, our goal is to bring everything from everybody, gifts, skills, assets, families, all we are in orbit around him, or the one above it. Our goal is alignment. Everybody line up behind Christ and grab a cross. You heard that in the sermon a few weeks ago. And then I just sort of tried to push that out is... Um, You know, love what is good and right and true, or do what Jesus says to do and say what Jesus says to say. You know how to do this. Um, Like, you know, this is a different kind of congregation. This congregation, one of the interesting things about this congregation is that you're also bright and successful. That's not the way it is in, in a lot of places, but in this particular congregation, you're very bright, and you often know your lines. The push you need to get from your pastors and your leaders and the way you need to push each other is to get those thoughts into action, to move words into deeds. That we don't just... So there's no... As the, as the Old Testament often says, you know, your, um, your lips are talking about me, but your heart's a long way away. So we kind of get cut in half and we're never any good for anything. The goal here is to pull everything into line, to pull everything into together, pull everything behind Christ. So if somebody says to you, what's the most important thing? You say that Christ is first in all things. In how I deal with you, how you deal with me. On, you know, so, ex- so for example, when you wake up on Sunday morning about coming to church, here's the question. Christ wants you to come to church. You want to do something else. What do you do? You know, Christ wants you to tell the truth. Somebody else wants you to tell lie. What do you do? Christ wants you to be generous with a tithe, for the church and an alm for the poor, and you might have other priorities, what do you do? You see how simple this is? But this all comes under the rubric of Christ being first and then lining up behind him. And if we carry one thing with us that will let us live in mercy and be pleasing to God, that is it. You know, if we can say, and if we can, when we engage each other, and when we think about our own lives, and we think about where the church should go, and we think about how we treat new people, the sermon for this morning, what do you do if Lazarus walks in the door and he, he doesn't quite look like you? Although I did find it very curious that Ganey could say, Muldoons, Roses, and Windermere, all in one sentence, <laughs> as if those were interchangeable parts, <laughs> which makes me think that I probably want to move on to seniors' ministry. That's where I'm gonna end up, because par- apparently that's where they are, But, you know, if those sort of people, you know, should happen to move in, uh, you know, uh, the question is that Christ is first. Um, And then, I just give you the last line on the page. You can look it up later, but um, Large Catechism 124, when that happens, you only expect good things from God. And that is so comforting. Christ first, and then you only expect good things from God. Anything that happens to you is a good thing, right? Right? It's a fantastic way to be able to live your life. When Christ is first, then your expectation, no matter if you suffer, no matter if there's pain, no matter if you have doubt, you can always say, Christ is for me, he's not against me. That's the great Lutheran thing. And then also, you always expect only good. It's the, that great prayer of, or sermon of St. Bernard of Clairvaux that we run for you occasionally. It's my favorite thing to say about prayer. When you ask for something, Jesus either gives you what you want or he gives you something better. That's just, that's the best. So if asked, you know, the most important thing about moving next door is Christ first in all things. And all of us lined up behind Christ who goes first. You know, who leads us in all things. In our relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In our relationship with each other. And also in relationship to um, the world. It's just so important. Okay? Okay. So anyway, practice your lines. Part of the reason of doing this is that if asked, you know what to say, and that we all say the same thing. What's the most important thing here? Christ first, and all of us lined up behind him. Okay? Thanks very much. Let's pray and let's go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven.